Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. I'm really excited to be talking to Dr. Walter Longo out of USC, and specifically the director of the Longevity Institute. Uh, you are likely familiar with his recently published book, The Longevity Diet. He's an internationally recognized leader in the field of aging studies and related diseases. His discoveries include some of the major genetic pathways that regulate aging and life-threatening diseases and the identification of a genetic mutation that protects excuse me, protects men from several common diseases, and we'll ping him on what those are exactly uh, in a minute. Uh, he's professor of gerontology and biological sciences and director of the longevity institution at the School of Gerontology at the University of Southern California in LA, and one of the, it's, which is one of the leading centers devoted to teaching and research on aging. He's also the director of the Oncology Lab Laboratory and Longevity at the Institute of Molecular Oncology, IFOM, in Milan. Uh, Dr. Longo received the Nation, Nathan Schock Lecture Award from the National Institute on Aging in 2010, and in 2013, the Vincent Cristofalo Rising Star Award for Research in Aging. Uh, and he also received the 2016 Glenn Award for Research in the Biolog Biology of Aging. Uh, he has a number of really highly cited papers, uh, and Time Magazine called him recently the guru of longevity. Dr. Longo, welcome to New Frontiers. Thanks for having me. So give me your background. How did you come to study longevity? That's actually uh, all I've ever done. Uh, I mean, I was a music student uh, in my first year in college in Texas, and um, and uh, that's when I made the decision that I wanted to study aging. And so from the very beginning, I, I switched to the biochemistry department and, um, and joined uh, several labs that were, work, were focusing on aging research. And uh, that's all I've ever done. I, I just thought it was uh, just a fantastic, at the time, 
a fantastic scientific uh, field, but I also realized that, um, that it was relevant to so many diseases, and I, I was just wondering why nobody it was focusing on the, on the underlying cause of, of so many of the human diseases, uh, which is aging. Yeah, that's extremely interesting. What instrument do you play? Uh, guitar. I was a guitar player. Yeah. So how did you just randomly make the, the jump into biochemistry? I mean, were you pinged by a particular study or? No, I think I, I probably, that's what I probably wanted to do all along. And, and in the book, I talk about the, the fact that I was in the room um, when my grandfather died and I, I was five years old. And so probably they just stuck in my head as a very major event. Uh, I mean, usually you don't get to see somebody dying uh, right. you know, uh, personally. And, um, but I, it, no, I didn't connect it very much. Maybe I'm connecting it more now and, and just thinking that all of a sudden I, at 19, I was sure I wanted to study aging. Uh, so I, I suspect that's probably, that was probably the event that stuck in my head as uh, um, this is a big problem, right? And, and I, I felt that also my grandfather died uh, fairly early, you know, in his late sixties. Mm. Uh, so I think that that was probably also uh, important for me in making the decision. That's real. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and, and, and a good de decision indeed. So just thinking about your grandfather, the town that you grew up in. I mean, there's it's it, it's 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 a blue zone. I mean, everybody, other, many folks there live a long time, correct? Yes, it has a, a record uh, prevalence of uh, centenarians. And, um, and in fact, that's something that I talk about in the book, uh, is this comparison between my grandfather and just a block away, Salvatore Caruso, uh, who was his friend of about the same age, and Salvatore uh, just died a few years ago. And uh, so 40 years later, right? So then I just always thought how amazing and, and became one of the oldest person in the world, 110 years old. So I just thought how amazing it is that uh, somebody uh, could, uh, could live uh, 40 or 50 years uh, longer or shorter, um, possibly uh, based on the decisions made. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. What in your town in Italy is? It, it, this little town is called Molocchio in the in the southern Italy, uh, Aspromonte Mountains. Okay, well, I want to circle back and talk about the you know what what you guys grew up eating and doing and why there's so many people there living a really long time. But just jumping into the you know the juxtaposition between Salvatore and and, and your grandfather, I mean, I'm I'm sure that at some level motivated you to be looking at these genetic mutations, you know, identifying some that, that, that promote longevity, but also the ones that, you know, when turned on really push aging. Can you talk about those? Yes. So eventually um, I made it to, um, to UCLA, uh, to the pathology department where Roy Walford was uh, um, one of the gurus of, of something called calorie restriction. And uh, at least in the early 90s, that was recognized as the, the most powerful intervention uh, for aging. And, uh, but Roy, uh, at the time, in fact, he was in, in Biosphere 2. He was, he was doing the first human, um, he was a medical doctor. Yeah. He was doing the first human uh, trial on calorie restriction. So he, him and other seven people 
uh, were doing this study on, the, on themselves, essentially. And their results were f phenomenal, but also uh, it was clear that a, there was a lot, lots of side effects, right? And, and eventually, Walford will die relatively early of, of Lou Gehrig's disease. I uh. suspect that it was doing part to his, uh, this his color restriction. And uh, so, but the point being that uh, me and another small group of, of scientists around the United States realized that we couldn't keep doing research in humans and mice. Um, we had to move back to uh, simple or Okay. Yeah. So we were um, we were uh, we moved back to simple organisms. In my case, to the unicellular yeast, uh, baker's yeast, uh, and others uh, started studying worms and flies. And um, and the gamble uh, uh, was, of course, that that um, we would uh, find genes that regulate aging, and that this, those genes would be the same or similar to those that regulate aging in humans. Uh, so it, it actually worked out, believe it or not. Everybody thought it was a very, a very bad idea, but uh, we were able to identify uh, two sets of genes: one's called Torres kinase, and the other one, uh, RAS-PKA, and which I call respectively the uh, protein uh, pro-aging pathway and the sugar pro-aging pathway. And uh, you know, eventually, that those were recognized, uh, uh, were validated by others. And uh, I think particularly the Taurus cyskinase pathway together with the IGF-1 uh, pathway discovered by Cynthia Canyon and Tom Johnson, um, those are uh, recognized as the, the two uh, most uh, important uh, uh, genetic pathways that accelerate aging and age-related diseases. Let me just say to the listeners that you'll see in the show notes, we'll link to some of the papers where Dr. Longo is talking about, you know, these particular pathways. Okay. Um, so TORS is related to sugar and protein kinase A is obviously related to, to um, you know, protein and, and accelerated. Way around, you know, so amino acids and protein uh, activate TOR okay. and IGF-1 and the sugar uh, activate uh, PKA and yeast, RAS PKA. Okay. Okay. Hey, can I just wanted to circle back to the biosphere and some of the side effects I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious what they noticed during calorie restriction. Yeah, I think it's pretty consistent. In fact, just a couple of days ago, I visited the University of Wisconsin where they're doing the, they did the monkey study on calorie restriction. And so you see pretty consistent similarities between the, the monkey study and the human study, which is uh, tremendous effects on, on, say, diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease, or the, the risk factors for them. But then you see the, uh, uh, both the monkeys and the, the people being pushed to the limit, to almost anorexic uh, levels. So, for example, in Biosphere 2, uh, the BMI was something around uh, below 19 mm -hmm. for, for, for males, right? So, uh, so they were really pushed to the limit. And, um, and, of course, they only stayed there two years. So when they came out, they, they, they looked terrible. Uh, and, uh, but that, that was it, right? In the monkeys, then, there was the opportunity to see that if you, in the monkey study, believe it or not, lasted 25 years, um, if not 30 years. And, um, and so you see that, um, for example, diabetes is completely or almost completely absent in the control, in the calorie-restricted uh, monkeys. And it's about 60%, uh, represents about 60% of the 
uh, monkeys on a control diet, right? Uh, cardiovascular disease cut by 50%, cancer cut by 50%. Yet, if you look at the overall mortality, mm-hmm. uh, there is not that much uh, difference, you know? And so, um, so for example, um, and I'm trying to get from them, and it's been hard, but I'm trying to get from them the, the actual table with all the uh, all the side effects. But some oh. of the things I heard are, for example, pneumonia, the, the chance of dying because of an infectious disease, uh, the ability to recover from anesthesia. Uh, so little things that uh, in many different ways end up killing the animal um and so yeah so the, the i think that the the side effects are uh many but they're they're not uh, um they, they don't necessarily represent lots of people so each each person may get a, a variation of that so maybe the sensitivity to a different infection right. and, and it doesn't, doesn't mean that they're so people will come back and argue and say, look, I, I, I tested the, the effect of a particular virus with color restriction, and I didn't see a problem. That's not the point. Uh, you could be protected from 80% of the viruses, and, uh, but you could be sensitive to 20%, and they still could get you killed um, if you get exposed to that 20%, right? So that's, uh, that's I think, some of the things that my, some of my colleagues are underestimating you uh, can be just sensitive to a minority of problems, and eventually that's going to be enough uh, to get you in trouble. Right, right. So there's not going to be a single smoking gun trigger increasing, you know, or limiting the the improvement on mortality. There, it's 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 variable, I suppose, depending on a number of factors in the inv- individual. But there's changes to the immune system sufficient. Uh, well, I mean, you know, the, the immune system um, can can certainly uh, appears to be lowered by the by the color restriction. For yeah. example, yeah. testosterone levels are are lower, um, and uh, there's lots of changes, um, including, let's say, IGF one can change depending on what diet you have. Uh, so these chronic interventions are uh, taught us a lot, uh, but uh, they're clearly another way to go. Right, right. I want to ask you one more question about that and then jump over to your work, which actually shows improvement in, you know, hematopoiesis and stem cells and improvement in white blood cell count. It's, it's actually really, really cool. But I just, I'm just curious about, you know, the stress of calorie restriction and, you know, cortisol and HPA access changes. Any comment on that as being a piece of the driver or change? of the problems in calorie restriction? Uh, we don't know. Um, I, I think that um, the suspicion is that the body um, is able to switch to uh, an alternative mode that's very clear with both fasting and calorie restriction. And the origin of that probably is fasting. So calorie restriction is tapping yes. into the fasting response. Right. Um, but when you enter... Uh, these alternative modes, you can have um, obviously um, lots of benefits, but the idea is not to stay there all the time. It was never the idea because keep in mind that to reproduce, if you're calorie restricted, um, you know, and calorie restriction refers to let's say 25, 30% uh, calorie intake below the normal level, not the excess level. So when you're calorie restricted, uh, for example, fertility is going to be impaired or, or blocked. 
And um, so clearly the, the color restriction was never meant to be forever, right? It was meant to be for a period, uh, things are not, uh, food is not available, whether it's the winter period or, or you happen to be in an in a area where there's no food, fine, you can be restricted, but you got to get out of that. And, um, and, and that's, I think, the problem of applying something chronically that uh, has never really been meant uh, to be applied chronically. Um, and so, yes, uh, you know, cortisone goes up, for example, during color restriction. And, uh, and we know that uh, increased cortisol levels chronically, I mean, if it's a, if it's a temporary acute effect, cortisone can be very beneficial. Yes. And we see it in fasting. But uh, uh, we know from the work of, of, of many scientists that that same cortisone eventually can cause lots of problems. And so that, that's just one example. Right, right. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm curious, we were just talking about the microbiome before we you know, started the interview, and I'm sure there's some pretty radical changes there, actually, and in your model as well. Um, okay, so you talk about, you know, increased risk of infectious disease in the calorie restriction population, but you actually showed um, hematopoietic stem cell-based regeneration and reverse of immunosuppression in your program, um, looking at animals. I don't know, it, 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 um, can you, I mean, do you just want to talk about that a little bit, and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of, of what you're doing? Yeah, so first of all, I think it's, it's important to uh, clarify that um, calorie restriction or, or fasting are words that don't mean anything. And, and I think, with, like with everything else, uh, we need to start uh, describing what it is that we're talking about. Okay, uh, let's so start there. It, it's like eating, you know, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, you can eat very well or very poorly. And, um, and so, you know, calorie restriction, uh, again, refers to this 30% chronic uh, uh, reduction in calorie below the normal level. And um, in fasting, um, it, it, it can go from a few hours to, to you know, a few months, right? And uh, as, a, as a potential period for people. And, uh, and fasting could be very good or very bad, uh, just like calorie restriction. Um, so the, um, what we've done is to begin to identify uh, the safe uh, and effective uh, uh, modes of fasting. So how long uh, do you do it for? And what do you have instead of water-only fasting, uh, which we realized very early on, it was not a good idea, both because of, of compliance. Uh, people were, did not want to fast um, with just water. And also because of safety, uh, there are all, all kinds of concerns. And, and usually water-only fasting should be done only in a, uh, in a clinic that specializes in water-only fasting and that it has medical personnel. So, um, so then we uh, identify first in mice, and now we're doing it in people, a, a, a period of fasting. Of a, well, first of all, we identified a fasting-mimicking diet. That yes. Is about, uh, you know, 800 to 1,100 calories per day and lasts about uh, five days. And then um, we apply that uh, to both mice and, and humans. And, and in mice, we were able to show that just uh, four days of this fasting-mimicking diet followed by uh, 10 days or so of the normal diet, a high-nourishment diet. So this alternation yes, uh, yes. was able to, um, to uh, uh, first kill, actually, white blood cells 
and, um, and, uh, uh, and then activate stem cells, hematopoietic stem cells, and during the refeeding, particularly, the stem cells now can give rise to uh, newly generated white blood cells. And uh, by this process, if you do it enough time, you can get immune system um, rejuvenation and, um, and, and rejuvenation not just of the immune system, but uh, uh, certainly the, 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 the hematopoietic system is one of the ones that was clearly affected by, this, uh, by these cycles. Now, it's very different if you did calorie restriction or, or, or uh, something similar, which could potentially have the opposite effects. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating. That's really, that's great that you're, you know, going the distance to look at, you know, how it should be pulsed and so forth. And when you, you know, just jumping on this topic to your human trial, did you look at white blood cell counts or um, did you evaluate immune response in, in human population? Yes, yes, we did that. Um, and we, uh, we haven't um, published on that yet. Uh, I, we're going to publish on that soon, soon enough. Um, but uh, keep in mind that our population in the trial, uh, the, we published last year with 100 uh, patients, that was a relatively young population. So right. we didn't start with... Uh, with people that have these uh, immunosenescence, uh, which would be more typical of the over 60 population. Right. Okay. All right. Well, we'll look for that study. That's pretty exciting. Okay. So, so talk to us about, you know, the, the fasting mimicking diet, like what, what's it comprised of? Yeah. So the fasting mimicking diet goes back to what we discussed earlier, the connection between proteins and TOR and uh, proteins mm -hmm. and IGF-1 and sugars and PKA and so it takes advantage of this knowledge, but not just this knowledge, much more than this, but this is just the, the, the two major components, I think. Um, and so it's a low sugar, low, I mean, a certain type of amino acid diet, um, and it's a high fat, um, uh, but certain type of fats. So everything is, is selected based on its uh, activity on, uh, on genes. And, um, and the idea is to make uh, people as happy as possible, uh, as nourished as possible, and, uh, and as full as possible, um, and at the same time achieve all the effects that we want to achieve uh, that would, would, would be achieved by, um, by fasting, well, not only fasting. Now, in, the, in this new set of papers that we are about to publish, we're going to, I think, uh, also introduce the concept that it's not just about removing things with the fasting making diet. It's also, there's also active components, and, and I cannot discuss it now, but, but, uh, but, but that's also uh, going to be the next wave of papers uh, indicating that uh, it's not just what you remove, but it's also what you have in there that has active effects. Well, let me ask you about, you know, you're, you're clear that some aminos are better than others. Can you mention some amino acids we want to kind of emphasize in the diet? Well, I just want to circle back to, you know, you talking about some amino acids are favorable and some are negative. I mean, can you speak specifically to, to that? Yes. So um, it, it, it's not that the amino acids are favorable or negative. They're just negative for uh, the fasting response, right? So if you have lots of leucine, for example, and you have lots of methionine or cysteine, 
you're going to interfere with the fasting response. And um, yeah, so those, the, those are just some of the examples of the amino acids that need to be uh, lower in, or low in the, uh, in the fasting-making diet. Okay. All right. So they're going to be more actively used in the Torah pathway? Well, they are, they are uh, TOR and IGF-1 uh, promoting or inducing. And so uh, if, you have them in the, if you have them in the diet, you can uh, reverse or, or partially reverse lots of the responses. Okay. All right. And so the di- your diet is, is, it looks like it's, most, it's really high in, 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 in plants, you know, plant proteins, plant, you know, phytonutrients and so 100% forth. You recommend some fish. Yeah. Now I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't mix the, the longevity diet, everyday diet with the fasting. With your research. Okay. Okay. Fasting mimicking diet is just something the last five days, you know, it comes in a box and, and that, that's it. You know, that's more like a medicine. Um, the, the everyday diet is, is something very different uh, and it's, it's completely different from the, uh, from the fasting mimicking diet. Well, can you talk about the constituents of the fasting mimicking diet? Yeah, so the, the fasting mimicking diet um, has um, basically um, bars that are made of certain type of nuts, again, selected for their, for their um, fat content. Um, and um, there are chips, there are vegetable chips, uh, soups that are, are, again, selected for the content. And everything is made to, to look reasonably normal, but in fact, uh, you know, every single soup and every single component took years of development to get it to uh, the point where it could be uh, tasty for people, but it will also be uh, um, acceptable from the point of view of uh, promoting fasting response, and not just that, also adding to the fasting response. Okay, and we'll link. We'll link actually to the to the site where um, clinicians can access it. That people can access this program. Um, all right. So, talk to me about some of the biomarkers that you've been looking at. And I'm interested specifically in what you might recommend a clinician who's um, working with patients with the fasting mimicking diet, what they would look at. So what did you look at in research and what would you recommend carry over into the clinical setting? Yeah, so in research, of course, now we're starting lots of clinical trials and, and um, you know, many we have on cancer um, and Alzheimer. We're about to start diabetes, uh, Crohn's, colitis. Uh, so we have many, many trials. Each one is completely different uh, with different, very different diets and the different length and different calories. But um, if for the, the time being, I think that um, the, what we recommend is, is basically what we've done uh, for, the, for the clinical trial on, on normal subjects. And, um, and, the may, and maybe what the... What the changes the main changes were so we we showed that three cycles of the fasting mimicking diet were able to reduce cholesterol triglyceride uh, systolic and diastolic blood pressure uh, c-reactive protein crp uh, fasting glucose and um, and also igf1 
mm-hmm. um, in, the, in the subjects that appear to have uh, problems to begin, begin with. So if somebody had low CRP, nothing happened. Right. Uh, but if somebody had a high CRP, in the great majority of cases, that was reduced uh, um, back to the, or was brought back to the normal level. So those are the things that I, I would uh, test uh, a baseline and, um, and after probably three cycles of the diet, you're not going to see lots of differences in the, um, after one cycle. Uh, but, uh, but after three cycles, uh, the lots of, lot, many of these, uh, uh, should be changed in particular in those that, that have a problem to begin with. And, um, you know, then of course, uh, um, that depends on the use of the diet, uh, um, yeah, some we think it it can be very effective against inflammatory conditions and diseases. Um, this is why we're about to start uh, you know, multiple trials on, on autoimmunities. Um, so, of course, the doctor in, in each case has to uh, uh, evaluate and decide which um, uh, which markers um, they should be looking at. Now, an interesting thing at the beginning, everybody said, "Oh, of course, you see all these changes because of um, it is because of weight loss." And so, I had somebody, a colleague from from Yale, um, look at this, and and in fact, it turns out that uh, these change these uh, effects are not associated with weight loss. Uh, I mean, of course, you you lose weight. But um, uh, when we analyzed the data, it did not uh, show that those that lose, lost most weight got most effects. In fact, some, in some cases, or in many cases, uh, we had uh, the effects with minimal weight loss. And, um, and so suggesting that uh, this is going to the, the core uh, or the heart of the problem and not, uh, and not just simply uh, making people leaner and, and therefore... I mean, Although it does make people lean it, but that's not the reason why they become healthy. What about the ratio of fat to muscle? Yeah, the, the, the fat, uh, uh, the ratio of fat to muscle um, was, um, and that's another, uh, I think, great uh, and unique feature of the fasting making diet, uh, that the relative uh, lean to uh, total body mass uh, was actually increased after three cycles of the FMD. And, uh, and the absolute uh, lean body mass uh, in one of the, this was a crossover trial, so we had two arms, uh, that two, two groups that went on the diet. And uh, in one case, uh, absolute uh, lean body mass, muscle mass was not affected. And, uh, and in the other case, we just slightly affected, uh, reduced, but again, with an with a increase in, in relative uh, mm-hmm. body mass. So... So, and, and, and the interesting thing is that if you look at patients at the end of the diet, you'll actually see a decrease in lean body mass, uh, even absolute. And then you look at them again a week after uh, the end of the diet and they regain that muscle mass and, uh, and return to the, to the normal level. Um, and that's, that's what we think is really the advantage of this versus the great majority of, of if you're just thinking about weight loss, Right. Um, the majority of diets out there is that refeeding period is really the moment where the muscle uh, is being rebuilt. And, um, and so we're now doing a clinical trial at University of Verona in Italy looking at, um, uh, at muscle uh, strength and, uh, and uh, a variety of tests on the uh, athletic performance. 
Well, I would imagine that that ratio might have been, you know, moving towards a favorable ratio. It, it might have, you know, been a piece of why the weight loss, th those that lost less weight, you know, had still had much of the uh, the other improvements that you're talking about in terms of inflammation and sugar and so forth. Um, I think it's, uh, it goes uh, much more to the, the, the core of, uh, of aging. Yeah. And, uh, so we think that um, it, uh, by causing intracellular and organ regeneration, uh, that's where the effect is. So autophagy is clearly occurring in all kinds of cell types, if not all of them. And also at the organ level and the system level, you have replenishment of uh, cells. And uh, we suspect that the body is able to get rid of, as we've shown for autoimmune, uh, uh, in our autoimmune paper a couple of years ago, uh, the body can get rid of damaged cells and replace them with, uh, with the functional ones. So you're, yeah, I mean, you're obviously these, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that individuals are getting into some degree of ketosis. Are you measuring ketones in that population or do you recommend it? Yeah, you, I mean, uh, ketones is, is one of the four things we always measure. We measure IGF-1, IGF-BP-1, uh, ketone bodies, and glucose. Um, and that's a good way to look at compliance, but also look at response. Mm -hmm. um, so people should have uh, lower or much lower IGF-1 by the end of the five days of the diet. Should have higher or much higher IGF-BP-1. Uh, should have uh, much higher ketone bodies and should have much lower glucose. Um, so if you don't see those, uh, then there could be compliance issues. The patient didn't do, didn't follow the diet. Uh, but there could also be that uh, the patient, for some reason, has, uh, uh, is, is a non-responder. We don't see that very often, but uh, it can happen. And, and also you want to investigate whether they may have some metabolic uh, uh, genetic disorder, you know, something that, for example, prevents gluconeogenesis. Mm -hmm. And uh, that could put the patient at risk. Uh, um, you know, for, for, uh, hypoglycemia, um, et cetera. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I'll look forward to seeing what you find there. We use the, we use, uh, you know, uh, ketogenic diets in practice sometimes therapeutically and, and do see that a similar resistance. Um, so ketones themselves have been shown to inhibit you know, there, there was a really interesting paper out of Yale, you know, the uh, inflammasome 3, I think, specifically. I mean, are you looking at, do you think ke the, the production of the ketone bodies themselves are one of the drivers of the anti-inflammatory benefit or a strong driver? Um, we haven't looked at that particularly. Um, so I, I'm glad that other people are looking at it. I mean, you know, we, we've been so busy... Um, in uh, uh, just looking at um, the effects of, of this fasting making diet and, and so many diseases and, and trying to get the, an idea of what the major player may be. And, um, and so I think it'd be good. Uh, it, it, we'll look forward to other groups uh, actually looking at um, what uh, different uh, uh, components or, or results of the diet can do in the ketone ketones uh, uh, and the fatty acids uh, are certainly uh, one of them. And uh, so it'd be great to see, um, could, could some of the effects be explained by, uh, uh, by uh, these. Now, of course, there is no doubt that the switch to 
um, a metabolic mode in which ketone bodies are used is uh, is important or very important in the in the effects that that we see. So um, th that's almost for sure. Now, whether the ketone bodies themselves are are um, also having a uh, independently of metabolism uh, an effect on on, on uh, uh, different cell types and and responses. Uh, we don't know, so I'm glad to to see that others are looking at it. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I, I, you know, I was taught that they were basically waste products. So, you know, the research on them being, you know, important in the, in and of themselves, perhaps as signal molecules in some form, is pretty is pretty interesting to me. What what um what would you say a healthy fasting blood sugar is? You know, in your research, what kind of numbers? Well. Um, I think that you can go down as low uh, as as probably the the fifties uh, and still uh, be okay. I mean, it depends that the doctor has to to make that evaluation in, uh, on whether um, somebody should go that low or not. And um, but um, but uh, that's probably like the 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 strongest response that that we see and that we want to see. Uh, but some people may go down to the 70s um, and uh, yeah, or 60s, and that's probably the, the, the more common response that you see. What about IGF-1? IGF-1, um, uh, same way. Uh, by day five, uh, you want to see uh, pre preferably a 30 40% drop. You know? So if somebody is starting with, uh, say, 280 uh, ideally, you want to, to get down to uh, 160, 170 or lower even by day five. And then, uh, but then um, you're not going to see the, the big of a drop um, after three cycles, after you return to the normal diet. Um. IGF-1. I just repeat the the answer. So for IGF one, the um, uh, we ex we want to usually try to get uh, patients to maybe a thirty forty percent reduction uh, temporarily, um, and then uh, you you may expect at least based on our clinical work about a twenty percent reduction long term. So if somebody starts with two eighty, uh, they may go into the one fifty one sixty range uh, temporarily. And then they return uh, to uh, maybe 220 or so after they resume the normal diet. Uh, that would be considered a, a good response. Of course, this is in the absence of changing their everyday diet, um, which I think is uh, is pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, that is remarkable. So they would return to where they were, the what they were eating prior to, and just toggle between. No, I, I guess what I'm saying is somebody has a high protein. If somebody has a 280 uh, um, IGF-1 level, it, they probably have a, a high protein diet. So if they do three cycles of the fasting mimicking diet, even though they return to this high protein diet, uh, they uh, should expect the IGF-1 to be lower to maybe the 220s level, which it's starting to have a big effect. If you look at the epidemiological data, it could have tremendous effects uh, on, on, on breast cancer, prostate cancer, colorectal cancer, 
um, where the 280 is associated with a very high incidence of these uh, of these tumors. So you talk about the frequency of using the fasting mimicking diet in healthy individuals, you know, and you recommend twice a year and then increased frequency when you're actually dealing with an active disease state. Like how did you come upon twice a year as being appropriate in healthy individuals and what's the frequency you would recommend otherwise? Yes. So the idea is to do it when you need to do it. And, um, and so the, um, I would say the historically and for all the reasons that we discussed, a uh, couple of times a year seems to be um, very, very safe, particularly because it's a fasting mimicking diet. It's not fasting. Now keep in mind, for example, water-only fasting is associated with goldstone formation, uh, hypoglycemia, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I want to warn people because uh, um, the, uh, the fasting came around many times before in the last couple hundred years and always disappeared. And the reason why it disappeared is because eventually somebody got hurt from it and doctors then turned against it. Um, so, so I think it's very important to, uh, to understand that if we make the same mistake again, we're going to end up with the same result. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're going to end up with uh, you know, somebody coming out and showing that people that do water-only fasting, uh, they get the gallstone. And they get the gallbladder operation and everybody's going to say, I don't want to do this. Uh, it's not worth it. So uh, I think it's important to keep in mind the potential in deciding the frequency, in the potential side effects. And um, so twice a year with the fasting making diet, uh, there is really uh, no evidence whatsoever that this you know, 800 to 1100 calorie uh, diet, which is uh, relatively high in fat, but it contains carbohydrates and, and proteins. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, I think it's a very safe, uh, uh, it's a very safe approach. Okay. Now, if somebody is obese and has high cholesterol, high blood pressure, uh, now the, the, the minimal risk uh, that could be um, uh, associated with frequently doing a fasting-making diet is clearly uh, lower than the, the risk of uh, um, imposed by the obesity and the, and the risk factors, right? So then that person has to do it, uh, I think, about once a month until they move to a different range, right? So um, if it works, as it, as it has worked in many, many, uh, in thousands and thousands of, of, of uh, patients that have done this, um, then, you know, you slowly can move into once every two months, every three months, every uh, four months. And that's probably the, the average frequency for a U.S. person uh, once every four months, I think that's uh, uh, that is probably a good uh, um, a good frequency uh, for the average American. So, you know, you're talking. I mean, it's a higher fat diet. What fats in particular are you emphasizing in it? Um, these are all uh, plant based uh, fats, so uh, olive oil and nuts. Uh, all the fats come from the two sources that are over and over and over being associated with uh, protection. Um, and um, yeah, so that's, that's, the, that's the only source of fat. Any comments on medium chain triglycerides? We're using, a, we're using them a lot in our field and they seem to promote uh, ketosis because they're burned so readily and absorbed rapidly. And eat, I, I mean, mean, 
yeah, mid-chain fatty acids, you know, they can have the, um, uh, they can be effective. Uh, there is data now suggesting that they can be effective in, uh, in brain um, uh, function and potentially protective against uh, uh, cognitive uh, decline. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I will warn uh, people against uh, uh, chronic diets uh, that contain, uh, contain uh, mid-chain fatty acids because, uh, um, you know, again, we um, don't know the long-term consequences of, uh, particularly if you have them together with the standard diet. So, for example, you know, ketone bodies plus the standard diet. Now, I always say, big mistake. Why is that? Well, it's like taking a hybrid car and trying to push the, uh, the car, tweak it so they can use electricity and gasoline power at the same time, even though it's not designed to do that. Right. Um, you know, it, it may, you may get some benefits. It may run faster for a while. And then um, eventually it's going to break down. Uh, now, of course, you could redesign it, but but uh, but that's uh, that's not what people are doing. So the danger of starting mixing chronically uh, things like that is that um, you now are confusing the system, and if the system is confused for long enough, it could uh, it could break down. So if you're pushing ketone body production and you're still ingesting sufficient simple carbohydrates for fuel. Is that what you're talking about, basically? Yes. Yeah, so I'm saying that the body can be in a, in a uh, high nourishment mode, Yeah. works on glucose mostly, or it can be in a starvation response mode, and now it can work on fatty acid, ketone bodies, and of course, it still uses glucose. Uh, it understands that. It has been programmed to do that. Yes. Now, if you're in a star, if you're in a full, uh, if you're in a sugar mode, and then you start throwing in there uh, ketone bodies, as, yeah. as uh, you know, some companies in, in Silicon Valley are doing. Right now, all of a sudden, you're, the the body is not going to understand what's happening, right? So yes. all of a sudden, you're pushing the brain, particularly, but everything else, to try to have two modes at the same time. And the question is, okay, you could be great for five years, seven years, ten. What happens after 15, 20 years of doing this? Yes. Uh, my guess is you're going to start seeing people with, you know, weird conditions uh, in the doctor's office, some of them potentially uh, very bad. Right, right. Well, if you look at the standard American diet, that it's, it's extremely high fat and extremely high simple carbohydrate, of course, we've seen the fallout out of, of that, you know, very clearly. So, yeah, I think that your, your point is, is really well taken. Um, let's see. So what about, you know, health span, lifespan? I mean, I know, you know, you're, we, we don't have long-term studies on calorie restriction in humans, but what are you thinking about with regard to your, uh, protocol? Yeah. So, so we have long-term studies on calorie restriction in monkeys. Uh, so I think that, um, that uh, those are together with the human studies and color restriction uh, tell, paint a pretty clear picture, which is, uh, again, you, you know, you're going to get good and bad, but the good is extraordinary, right? So the good is revolutionary for medicine. And that to me, it's just unbelievable that we don't spend half of the, the funds at the NIH on, on this, right? Because I guess, and that's what we've been trying to do with the fasting making diet is what I've been trying to do. Uh, for the past 25 years, uh, since the Walford years, is clearly 
the calorie restriction can have tremendous effects on health span, I mean, and the healthy longevity, uh, but then it has these side effects. So if we can figure out how to remove the side effects, mm-hmm. then, uh, then I think, you know, that's really a medical revolution. And I, I think, you know, I'm very biased, but I think the, the, this periodic fasting-mimicking diet is getting very close to that. And, and as we have already demonstrated both in, in animal studies and in human studies, uh, now, of course, we don't know, uh, we don't have the uh, long-term data, but we're starting to get that, uh, the, the prolonged uh, fasting-mimicking diet. And by the way, I should mention, I don't make a penny out of this. Everything I mm-hmm. donate to, uh, to a foundation called Create Cure Foundation to keep funding uh, research and, and efforts in, in this direction. But uh, the, the prolonged FMD now has been done by over 50,000 people, right? So, and, and now there's going to be an app uh, collecting where people can uh, collect data and send it back in to the, to, the, uh, uh, to the database. And so I think in a couple of years, we, pro- we may have a million people uh, right. that uh, for whom we'll know um, the effects of, of uh, m- multiple cycles or many cycles of fasting making diet. So I think it's going to be extraordinary because in a few years we may be able to say, hey, we, um, we're now reducing not just the risk factors for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, etc. We're actually starting to reduce the, the incidence of these diseases. Yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary. That's really cool. So I did want to mention that, that you don't receive any profit from um, the El Nutra company that produces the Prolon um, products. Can you just give me the website where people can access this? And when is this app going to be available? This app, I think, is already ready to go uh, or really, really close to being available to doctors and patients. And, uh, and the site is Prolon FMD. Uh, dot com p r o l o n f m d uh, dot com and um, uh, yeah so then uh, the doctors and patients can find all the information about this uh, on that website. What kind of data are you interested in collecting from you know the the people using the app? Everything. So I, I think that the weight, uh, the circumference, the uh, the cholesterol, the blood pressure. Um, yes, yeah, so all the, the things that um, the diet uh, uh, has uh, inflammation, inflammatory markers, uh, um, fasting glucose, et cetera, et cetera. So, for example, in the trial, we show very clear effects on pre-diabetes. Uh, so people that were pre-diabetic returned to the normal level, you know, right there would be extraordinary now having, you know, say 50,000 people that are pre-diabetic. Uh, how many uh, can we um, can we see going returning back to the uh, to the normal state? And um, what is the frequency? Maybe it turns right. out that you could do every four months, and a pre-diabetic uh, every four, but just doing this every four months can uh, stay in the healthy, can return to the healthy state. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Yeah, very interesting. Well, now you talk about exercise, you know, appropriate exercise. You know, you mentioned community in your book. I mean, what about the what about the other lifestyle interventions that are you you know are you re- recommending concurrently with the fasting mimicking diet or when they cycle off of it? I mean, talk talk about some of those and what you think are most important. Yeah, so the exercise I have a, a, a chapter in the book. Obviously, very important, but also if you, you know, in the book, I, I try to talk about five pillars 
uh, of longevity. So not just looking at one study or two studies, but really looking at five different disciplines. And so for exercise, if you look around, for example, if you look at the centenarians, they're very active. They don't really exercise, right? Right. And, uh, so in, but in the book, I, I, I really look at the meta-analysis, so, so the, the, the studies of studies, right? So what if you put all the exercise studies together, what is the effect on lifespan? And it turns out that about 150 minutes of exercise a week is ideal. If you go to 300 minutes, it, you don't really see that many changes, that much, the much uh, additional improvement. And also it looks from the data that uh, if you do about 10, 20% of that exercise, you, you push yourself. So if you have out of the 150 minutes, maybe 30 minutes in which you push yourself, uh, not to the limit, but certainly uh, to a higher level of, of uh, um, uh, exercise. Yeah, so the, the, um, the exercise, uh, 150 minutes of which maybe uh, 30 minutes should be at the strenuous uh, level. It doesn't mean that you have to push yourself to the limit, but certainly pushing uh, yourself a little bit seems to be important. Uh, um, yeah, so that, that's basically, I say 30 minutes of exercise every other day, um, and then maybe a little bit more on the weekend, and that should be enough uh, for most people to optimize their, uh, their health span, uh, so healthy longevity. What are you recommending when they're on the, the FMD? Yeah, when they're on the FMD, no exercise. Uh, they can uh, walk around, they can be fairly active, but they should stay away from any dangerous situation. Uh, at least until they know how uh, it, it affects them. Uh, even driving for some people could be uh, problematic. We really don't see it, but um, you, we have to think about, you know, one in a thousand, you know, now we're, we used to be one in a hundred, but now we're really starting to think one in a thousand. Um, and this allowed us, uh, again, out of 50,000 people that have already done it, uh, very, very few uh, um, adverse uh, events that were in the, in the uh, three or four level. Uh, so for example, I think we had the one patient that went to the, to the hospital, uh, but then was released with no, with no problems. So, so, so um, yeah, so that, uh, that's very important to not, um, not combine the FMD with uh, anything that like exercise that uh, could push you over the edge. Right. It seems to me in general, you want a physician um, or a clinician of some form monitoring an individual doing the program. Is that correct? Yeah, the ideal, uh, if you have any concern, uh, if, uh, if you have a disease, you need a, a, a physician mm -hmm. um, to do the FMD. If you don't have a disease, we recommend a physician, um, but um, you know, some people uh, decide that they want to just talk to a registered dietitian, and uh, that's fine. But uh, yeah, the, the recommendation is for a for a physician in, uh, in all cases. All right. Just a couple more questions. I just want to pick your brain. One of the, you know, one of the interesting things I read about laboratory findings in the biosphere was thyroid production was down. I mean, it makes sense to me because meta metabolism is ramped down in this population. But have you, have you seen any changes like that in the FMD folks? Um, I think there may be a temporary effect on, on thyroid production, uh, but um, we're now actually looking at, uh, we're doing a clinical trial on Hashimoto, 
syndrome and uh, the hope in, uh, is that uh, it, it can help at least um, with this autoimmune uh, uh, disorder. But um, yeah, I think that uh, those temporary effects on, on, on uh, uh, hormones and, uh, uh, and other factors um, are, are very much coordinated. Uh, so as long as they're coordinated, meaning that as long as they're part of something that has been, a, 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 there is an evolved process, an evolved adaptive response, uh, people should be fine with it. Right. Uh, you know, again, if you start uh, creating an artificial environment, um, then, uh, then I think that, you know, with the steroid hormone or, or, or anything else, um, eventually it could cause problems. Um, so, yeah, so I, I wouldn't, uh, um, we haven't seen anything uh, thus far um, that um, appears to be um, a long-term hormonal, for, for example, testosterone, estrogen, were not affected by the, uh, uh, by the cycles. Now, testosterone and estrogen are affected by calorie restriction, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, they're both lowered, right? So that's, it's also an interesting uh, difference. You know, the, the FMD, the periodic FMD, seems to be able to uh, not drive things down uh, the same way the chronic calorie restriction uh, is being known to do. For example, chronic calorie restriction drives fasting glucose level lower and lower and lower and lower. Mm -hmm. And uh, so let's say that, that somebody has a fasting glucose of, of 75. It's very healthy already, right? You, you wouldn't want them to go uh, down anymore. But for, in, after chronic restriction, you see that. Uh, after cycle of the FMD, you don't see that. If they mm -hmm. started with 75, they, they continue with 75. They might go up to 78. Uh, so it's very, very uh, important that, um, you know, the, the, the system recognizes what's uh, uh, broken and what's not, and it doesn't necessarily continue to lower hormones or, 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 or factors that might be at the right level. One of the things I wondered about um, calorie restriction, you know, especially in light of the the lowered output of of T3 and T4, and you know, was also a possibility of an increase or decrease mitochondrial density, and then a subsequent reduction in oxidant stress. I mean, w w w you know, and therefore influencing, you know, less inflammation and, you know, and, and perhaps, I, well, anyway, any comments on that, on, on reducing oxidant stress and free radical activity in the calorie restriction versus the FMD? Well, I mean, uh, obviously, uh, calorie restriction is very beneficial for, for lots of things. And uh, whether it's inflammation or, or uh, um, you know, mitochondrial uh, function, and there's a recent study showing that um, in, in, um, in people that uh, it reduces uh, oxidative stress. Um, so, yeah, there is no doubt that uh, the calorie restriction can be very beneficial. Again, the problem is the, the, the other side, right? right. Uh, for example, um, a recent study showed that it, um, that it reduces metabolic, metabolic rates. Yeah. Um, well, you know, um, uh, what happens is that most people that um, undergo long-term restriction of calorie eventually can no longer sustain that. Then they go back to the normal diet. And if your metabolism is slowed, 
Uh, and in some cases, it can be, it's been shown that it can be slowed for years, right? So now you return to the yes. normal state, and now you can, uh, what's been observed over and over and over, you regain all the weight and more, right? Yes. And uh, why? Because now your, your body has gone into a thrifty response. It's trying to save energy, uh, but yet now you're back eating normally. And uh, yeah, so th- these are some of the things that, that uh, are important. Uh, so it's important to learn from calorie restriction. Yes. Tremendous amount of data for the last 100 years, including great work recently in humans. Uh, but it's also clear to also the people that are doing it that this is not the way to go. Um, you know, the periodic uh, intervention uh, seems to be a much better w- way to go. Together with the daily intervention, for example, in the book I talk about 12-hour time restricted feeding. Uh, that's, mm-hmm. a very good, uh, that's a very good practice. Um, and I talk about two meals a day if you're overweight. You know? So there's things that you can do every day, um, but, um, but uh, the, the intervention... Uh, the the revolutionize your diet should probably only be periodic, uh, also because of compliance. You know, people uh, we know already cannot do major changes to their diet for very long periods. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, listen. I just want to thank you so much for for joining me today, and and you know, just being willing to go on this journey and answer all these questions. It's been useful and illuminating for me and um, I think my audience likewise is is going to glean a lot out of this so thank you so much for your time today Dr. Longa well, you're very welcome thank and you. we'll just make sure we link to your site um, well I'll throw up some of the key publications that you've uh, authored with your team and you know we'll just we'll make it available yeah, and I also have a, a, a Facebook page, um, you know, where I just update people on the new studies that I think are relevant. And uh, yeah, so. Okay, we'll link over to Facebook as well. Thanks again. Okay, thank you. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, These kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.